0: Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights, a up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights. 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 Lights up.
1: Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga.
2: Hi, my name's is Khalil
0: Gamble, stationed in
3: Maryland. Peter Macklin from New York City.
4: Sadie Collins, recording from Chattanooga, Tennessee.
3: Lights up. A Terrible father. I'm not a terrible father. I've never been a terrible father. You know why? because I'm not a father. Nobody's father, and nobody includes you because until you showed up this evening, I didn't even know you existed. So for you to drop in out of nowhere and lay paternity on me doesn't work. Hell, for all I know, there is another another you in every damn state in the nation. I'm a rock and roll star. You know what we do? We play concerts, booze, party, and get lots of girls. So don't feel so special, so injured, because I did nothing to you. Hell... I did nothing, period, except get laid by some chick who in some brief moment in time thought I was a god. You, you want to be angry? You want to blame somebody? Blame your mother. Assuming that what you're saying has even the inkling of credibility. She's the one who was a terrible father. The mother. She didn't have the courtesy to tell me she got knocked up. Maybe because I wasn't the one who knocked her up. But if I was, she told me, then maybe, just maybe... I'd have been a good father to you, or sent you money, or sent something, because underneath this sex, drugs, and rock and roll exterior, I'm a really nice guy. But the critical point here is, she decided that you should be a secret. So why don't you honor her wishes, and stay a secret? Because I'm not interested in being a father, got it?
4: Got what you're saying.
3: Great, goodbye, good luck, and whatever.
4: Is that it?
3: That's it. Oh, wait, wait. You want a sign CD or something?
4: Wow. It must be exhausting keeping up that level of arrogance.
3: Fine. No CD, no t-shirt. Have a nice life. Do
4: you even remember her?
3: Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. I, last time I played this town was like a million years ago.
4: Actually, 32 years and nine months ago. Funny. No. Factual.
3: It's amazing. I even remember the name of this town. Sioux City? Sioux Falls. There. See? I was probably so wasted back then. All those brain cells that hang on to memories are cooked.
4: Her name was Lisa. Does that ring a bell?
3: Lisa. Oh, that's a big help. That's like Smith or something. You know how many damn leases there were back then? There were so many Lisas, if you couldn't remember a chick's name, you called her Lisa, and chances are you'd be right. Or she wouldn't care she's dead. what?
4: She killed herself.
3: Oh my God oh my God I'm I'm sorry sorry for your loss but um, look Annie
4: Angie
3: Angie. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Women who hook, hook up with rock stars like to keep some sort of souvenir of that time, like like naming a child after a star's song. Okay. Well, I never wrote a song called Angie, and I never sang a song about any Angie, but you know who did? Mick Jagger. So maybe, just maybe, lost in the haze of those past years, your mother has me confused with Mick Jagger.
4: I'm just going to stand here silently while you contemplate the total insanity of that statement.
3: Look, I'm really sorry about your mother. That's a terrible thing. But it's nobody's fault. She obviously had problems. Uh, I, I, sh- I, I, sh- I shouldn't have said that. I just... I don't know what you want from me. This is about money or... or- I don't know, something else?
4: I don't need your money. Mom married a very successful man who provided for us. I don't need money.
3: So you had a father. That's good. And he sounds like a stand-up guy, so so you don't really need me.
4: He wasn't my father. He was a substitute, a fill-in. And yes, he was a great guy. He treated me and mom like royalty. But you can't have father-daughter dreams of a fill-in. It's not like baseball there are no designated fathers
3: that's pretty cold you would know look even if i had been told about you and had married your mother or something i would have been a truly terrible father i'm always on the road in the studio drunk drugged unfaithful bad stuff that's not a father was well, certainly not a good father the guy your mother married sounds like he knew how to be a father that's a skill she made a good choice, someone who cared. I mean look at you you, you seem educated? I am you've got poise and personality you seem like you, you seem like you got it all together. So be happy for the life you had. It turned out better for you. I'm not your father. I'm just a narcissistic, selfish jerk.
4: And I carry your DNA unless you're doubting that. If you want to do a blood test, that's okay with me.
3: No, we we, we don't need to do that.
4: So you believe that I'm your daughter?
3: There's a big difference between someone being someone's daughter and being the result of, you know...
4: Banging my mother?
3: Okay, well that wasn't very educated.
4: Must be your DNA.
3: All I'm trying to say is, family is more than the genes you share. It's how you love, how you care.
4: God, if you're going to quote one of your songs, at least pick a good one. That must have been written during your trite years, which were most of them. Lord Almighty. You want a drink? No. Well, I do. Do you still think about her?
3: Think about a lot of things. You know how many concerts we play in a year?
4: Bands only play Sioux Falls on the way up and the way down. So this is probably only your second time here, and I'm guessing when they told you you were playing Sue Falls again, you remembered her.
3: I remembered Sue Falls, yeah.
4: And what you remembered was her. You want to see a picture? What? Of my mother. Do you have any brain cells left?
3: Show me the picture. Well? She's uh, was a very attractive woman. I, I, I can see the resemblance.
4: Do you recognize her?
3: It's not a great picture. Kind of old and faded, so it's hard to tell. Maybe.
4: How about this one? Oh God. Anybody in that picture you recognize? Yeah. Who?
3: Me? That means nothing. There are probably thousands of girls with photographs. Well, okay, not not thousands, but, but, but a bunch.
4: At a family barbecue?
3: I don't know. Maybe. I've been to a lot of barbecues.
4: You went with my mom. To a family barbecue. It's right there in the picture.
3: Okay. I was there.
4: Why? Why were you still there? Your concert was finished, right? Yeah. So?
3: The band had a couple of weeks off. They all moved on. I I stayed behind.
4: You must really love barbecue.
3: I stayed because of your mom. Lisa. Okay?
4: Oh, we are so close to getting an honest story from you.
3: I wanted to spend more time with her. We hit it off and she seemed different than... than the others. But it, it wasn't mutual.
4: She told you that?
3: Look, if you've got a point to make, make it. We'll get there. God, you must have been a difficult child.
4: No, actually I was pretty adorable. People loved me. Too bad you missed that.
3: Look, let's save a little time here. Why don't you just get a pliers and yank out all my fingernails?
4: Ooh. Am I upsetting you?
3: No. You're bloody adorable.
4: Okay. Change of topic. Kind of. Did my mother like your music?
3: That's a joke, right? If she didn't like my music, she wouldn't have come backstage, we wouldn't have gone to that party, and you wouldn't be standing in that doorway.
4: Wait. Did I just hear an admission of paternity?
3: You want me to admit it? Okay. It's very likely that I'm your your you know. Father? Fine.
4: You can't even say the word, can you?
3: Father, it's very possible I'm the man who made a baby with your mother that and that baby is most likely you.
4: Well, I'm the only baby she had, so the odds are
3: Point made. I'm not fighting you on it. In fact, I'll say it straight out. Your mother and I were lovers. That lasted about two or three weeks, 32 years and nine months ago. I wish I had known back then she was pregnant, but I I didn't. I was never told. And she obviously had her reasons for not telling me. So there's the whole sad story. Small town, wild rocker, booze, sex, and you.
4: And if she had told you, would I be here today? What's that mean? Would you have let her complete the pregnancy?
3: That wouldn't have been my choice.
4: To let her complete the pregnancy?
3: To make that decision. That would have been her choice.
4: And if she had asked for your opinion, what would you have said?
3: But this is getting ridiculous. We both know what we were doing when we got together. We obviously didn't know how we would end up. We made a consensual adult decision, enjoyed our time together, and then moved on.
4: I get it that you've banged your way across America.
3: Well, oh, that's a little crude.
4: And I get it that most of those girls were just faceless groupies. My mother meant something to you.
3: I'm getting another drink.
2: Tommy, you going back to the hotel? Oh, nice. You got dibs on this, Tommy?
3: Get the hell out of my dressing room.
2: What the hell's wrong with you?
3: Just get out.
2: What did I do?
4: You insulted his daughter.
2: Daughter? me Tommy's daughter? Oh, right. Yeah, of course, my bad. He talks about you all the time. He's so proud of you. You really work
3: with
4: idiots like this?
3: What can I say? He's a bass player. Beat it, Benji.
5: Too bad you're his
3: daughter. Sorry about that.
4: Wow. You went all dad on him.
3: Well, oh, he was disrespectful.
4: To your daughter?
3: Sharing DNA doesn't make him my daughter. It takes more than that. You sure you won't have a drink?
4: You going to ask me to sit
3: down? I didn't plan on you staying this long. Yeah, come in. Sit down. I'll have a drink. Tequila okay?
4: Caught anything else? No. Tequila it is.
3: Whoa, 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 whoa. I'd suggest you sit in the chair.
4: Couch seen a few Lisas?
3: Lisas, Lana's, Laura's, Layla's, Larry's. Who knows? It's all rock and roll. Were
4: you planning on seeing her this time?
3: I didn't know she was dead. I sent a note and some tickets to the last address I had for her. I don't know if they uh, ever...
4: I have them. You sent them to her parents' house. Her brother Carl lives there now. He passed them on to me. I used those tickets to come here tonight.
3: So she never saw the note? She had already...
4: She had terminal breast cancer. That's why she did it. Oh,
3: God. I wish I had known.
4: She remembered you. She talked about you. You meant something to her. Why can't you admit she meant something to you?
3: She didn't want me to. After the band played Sioux Falls... After the barbecue and the weeks with Lisa, I rejoined the band in Minneapolis. Our first album was about to drop and the label thought it was gonna be big. So they booked tours for us all around the country and Europe and Asia. After Minneapolis, I flew back to see Lisa to tell her everything, see if she wanted to go along with us, but something was different. Or maybe there was, or maybe I thought there was more than there was. Anyway, I I went on tour and I wrote Lisa, but she never wrote back. I called the number she gave me, but she wouldn't take my calls. After a while, I stopped trying. I figured it was karma. I was fun for a while and now it was over and I was best forgotten. I, I swear, I didn't know she was pregnant. I didn't know there was a... You. About 15 years ago, I hired a private detective to track her down, and he found her, still here in Sioux Falls. He told me that she was happily married and raising a family, and I should just let it go. So I did. Until we got this booking. I didn't want to come here. I tried to get them to cancel the concert, but money is money.
4: But you sent tickets. Yeah.
3: I was hoping that maybe she'd come and it could be like, I don't know, high school reunion where you see your old girlfriend. Nostalgic. Sweet. To find out why she never answered my letters. You loved her. Doesn't matter. She wasn't interested. I figured she was right. I wouldn't have been a good choice. I clearly do not have a family gene. (laughs) I would really like to have seen her to say hello to see how beautifully she aged to know that she was well
4: but she wasn't yeah She got your letters she kept all of them and read them over and over then why she was a small town girl and you were a big rock star. You had money and fame, traveled the world. Your life was glamorous. She taught elementary school. She figured eventually you'd get tired of her and drop her. She truly wanted you in her life. She told me every time I had a bad breakup, you'll live, look at me. I gave up the love of my life, and I'm just fine. As painful as it was not to answer you, she felt it would be even more painful if she committed and you didn't really want her. So why take a chance? But she always held on to the memory of you. Of that wonderful summer hanging with a rock star. She played your music all the time. Even the new stuff.
3: And that didn't make you wonder why she was so hooked on my music?
4: She also played a lot of Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I never suspected that Flea might be my father.
3: Mm, Fair enough.
4: Missing Your Arms was about her, wasn't it? I didn't figure that out until after she died.
3: Yeah. That was for her.
4: It's a very pretty song. One of your best.
3: Thank you. Listen, I- I'm sorry I was such a jerk earlier. You caught me off guard. I-, I I really never knew that Lisa had a baby.
4: I know. I didn't know about you until a couple of years ago. After Hal died. She told me she felt like he was the second husband she'd lost.
3: We're really stupid. Who? The world. People. We rush through life, taking care of the day-to-day, doing the same thing over and over, making the same mistakes over and over, and then one day something comes along that slaps you in the face and you suddenly realize how much of life you've let get away.
4: Not everybody.
3: The stupid thing is, I was chasing a dream, while the real dream sounds trite, doesn't it?
4: Yes. Truth often sounds trite, but still true.
3: Somebody once said, never set your dreams too low because what will you do once you get them? Rockstar's not that great of a dream. I didn't let myself dream big. I figured it wasn't for me, so I just let it go.
4: You're allowed to have more than one dream.
3: So you and I?
4: That depends. Should there be a you and I, or are you just trying to assuage your guilt?
3: Both. So, so what do we do now? Stay in touch? Christmas cards? What?
4: There is something I want. Okay. I want you to do one fatherly thing for me. Then if you don't want to stay in touch, fine.
3: Whatever you need. I'm ready to do it. But if it's like a kidney or something, you should know I've abused my body pretty badly over the year, so... Uh,
4: I don't need a kidney.
3: That's good. My organs... Yeah, you know.
4: I'm getting married next June.
3: Congratulations. That's wonderful. You, you want me to play at the wedding? You got it. Let me check my tour schedule with my manager and we'll work it out. Okay? I'm happy to do it.
4: I want you to give me away. What? I want you to walk me down the aisle. And when the priest asks, who giveth this woman, I want you to say, me, her father.
3: Angie, that's crazy. I'm nobody. I'm I'm a stranger. How about Carl, your your mom's brother? That, That makes more sense.
4: You weren't there for my first day of school. You weren't there for the father-daughter dances. You weren't there to help me with scouts or soccer. You missed all of my graduations. This you will not miss. I'm your daughter, and it is never too late for you to be my father. So are you going to do this?
3: Just think a minute.
4: It's not up for debate. So?
3: I don't know. I... I'm feeling this crazy mix of run for the hills and, and, and my little girl's getting married. <laughs> I, I can't get my head around it. Maybe if you had eased into it, you know? Like, if we had the uh, I'm your father talk we had, then have dinner in a couple of days, and then you bring it up, but...
4: Let me read you something. My darling Angie... I have always regretted not letting you know about your real father. Underneath all his bluster and arrogance and self-importance, he was actually a very good man. I made a big mistake pushing him out of my life and yours. I hope someday you'll meet him. Who knows? He might even give you away at your wedding. There's more,
3: but... Can I see that? Lisa. So sweet. So real.
4: She loved you, Tommy.
3: Sleepwalking.
4: I don't follow.
3: It's what happens. You make choices. No, no, no. Not, not choices. Choices indicate there was some thought involved. That's not what happens most of the time. We just react. A beautiful girl finds you attractive, you react. Take advantage of the situation. Why not? Tomorrow you'll be somewhere else, and she'll be somewhere else. None of it matters. But then there's a time when it does matter. When you think this is different. This is something good. And you want it to matter. But when you do something to make it matter, it doesn't accomplish anything feel the fool and you go back to sleepwalking
4: until i wake you up yeah
3: and here's the thing by my age you have sleepwalked through a lot of stuff not just girls but friendships business deals promises never kept dreams never pursued and somewhere along the line you got to face up to it and do what you can But most of us never wake up. We just keep living our own little world, where everything we did was good and just.
4: We're all a little selfish. Maybe a lot selfish. Not Lisa. Yes, she was. She chose to protect herself from maybe being hurt instead of taking a risk. She lost the man she loved, and I lost a father but you can fix that.
3: By not being selfish?
4: You've got a few brain cells left.
3: I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk you down that aisle. For her. For Lisa. I'm going to do it.
4: That will make her very happy to know that.
3: Should we hug or something?
4: You haven't earned that yet. Uh, One other thing.
3: That's two things. You said one thing.
4: Deal with it? You need to write a song for the wedding. Okay. In your old style, with real words and melody, and not that digitally enhanced drum machine synthesizer crap you write now.
3: Which sells a lot of records.
4: Not on the charts I've seen. And make it a sweet song. It's for the father of the bride dance.
3: Promise. It'll make you cry.
4: Good. See ya, Dad.
2: I'm really sorry about before. Are you okay?
3: Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very okay. I'm going to be a
0: father. Lights out. Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic the Lights Up podcast, would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity.
2: Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Lights Up. We are here in season three, which is so incredible and we're so grateful for you joining us. I'm Dana, joined by my ever faithful co-host, Miss Christy. Say hello, Christy. Hello,
5: Christy. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and today we are joined by the fantastic Rob Dames, who was the playwright of For All We Know, which we just got to hear. So welcome, Rob.
6: Thank you. Very nice to be here.
2: That's right. Where are you joining us from?
6: Los Angeles.
5: Yes, and very hot lately, as I understand it. It's
6: Un- Unusual, if so. And then this weekend was even more unusual. We were under hurricane watch. First one since 1939.
5: <laughs> So, Rob, for
6: our listeners, if you would give us a little bit of background
5: on you. How long have you been a playwright and what got you interested in playwriting?
6: Well, that covers about 60 years of uh, information. <laughs> um, that's a, I guess the easiest way to explain it is I, I, at 12, I started working as a child actor in St. Louis, my hometown, and then went to St. Louis University to get a degree in theater And then went into the Air Force, where they assigned me to be a nuclear launch officer, exactly where you'd put a theater major. Wow. Uh (laughs) While I I was there, I had enough additional time that I co-founded a a theater in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is where the air base was, which uh, became a big success and uh, still going today. And after that, I went to grad school, and I didn't finish grad school because I got a resident director's position at two theaters back in my hometown, St. Louis. So I went back there, directed for, I think, three years, a lot of stars. It was two dinner theaters, but we used a lot of star talent.
2: Which two theaters did you work at?
6: One was called The Barn, and the other one was called The Plantation. Ah. And they were both, uh, one of them, The Plantation was enormous, like 1,200 seats, and The Barn was about 500. Um, uh, but I worked with a lot of stars who were always very complimentary. I, w- I was working as a director at that time. They were very complimentary and kept telling me I should come out here. And, uh, eventually I did came out with the idea of getting back into acting, found out very quickly. That was not where I was going to have any success and, uh, switched to writing, uh, wrote a book play that got produced locally called Frozen Stiff. It was a comedy farce. And that got me noticed and hired as a staff writer on Love Boat. And from then on, I wrote in television until sometime in the 90s. And then when I got out of television, I went back into my roots, which is plays and theater. So I've been writing plays continually since about Mm. let's say early 90s or mid 90s wow
2: and on love boat that's huge how was <laughs> what was that experience like
6: well it was my very first job so out here so i had an office on fox studios which was so cool to drive through that gate every day and go in there and work and you know and you know how love boat was it was it was kind of a uh all the old stars were coming, being used on that show. So it was an amazing opportunity to meet some extraordinary people on a one-to-one basis. And I didn't stay there long.
2: How did that influence your um, playwriting to be working on a television show? Because the pace is certainly different. The expectations are different. Um, talk a little bit to our listeners about what you learned from that um, experience.
6: Well, I think that the main thing you you learn writing for television is you have to be fast and you have to be exact and you have to be willing to throw out everything you wrote, start over again. Into, you know, The process is you just to take a typical week, Monday morning you typically do a table read of that week's script and then after the table read, the writers go back and start working on what didn't work at the table while the actors begin rehearsal. And every afternoon, three thirty, four 4 o'clock, you come down and see a run-through return to the writer's room and work on everything that's not working. And that's the schedule up until, well, Thursday, the cameras come in and you have camera rehearsal. And again, that night, you do a final polish. Friday, you do two shows, 4 o'clock and 8 o'clock. At 4 o'clock, you shoot a show. In between shows, you go back and fix everything that didn't work during the first show. And then you shoot the second show. And that's that's the typical week. And it's 40 week, forty weeks of that, well, 20, 22 episodes of shooting, but 40 weeks of uh, actual writing. So it's a very grueling schedule. It's a 70-hour week on a regular basis. But you really learn to just not be shy about writing. You learn to say, try this, let's do this. How about this? And you throw something out. And it dies or it gets picked up or... But you got to keep trying, and and that works on playwriting. And the fact that I'm probably my hardest critic. I write write a script, and I tend to, <clears throat> I do not tend to outline or anything. I like to just once I have the thought in my mind, go for it, and then I put it aside for a day, and then I read it, and I go, well, this sucks, and I work on the parts that, that don't suck, and start reforming it, and I will typically go through. 30, 40 drafts of a script before I ever send it out. Or in the case of the musical that we're still trying to get mounted somewhere, I think I'm on draft 110. So, you know, some people will say the play's not finished until it's in front of an audience. No, it's not finished then. It's just, that's your last critic. There there was a writer, a television writer by the name of Bob Rush, writer-producer, most famous for Wonder Years. And uh, Bob used to, after the show aired... Go back and re-edit it because he didn't like what he saw in the air.
5: So we just got to listen to Peter, Savannah, and Khalil bring For All We Know to life. Um, Give Mm -hmm. us a little bit of history on this piece. When did you write it? What inspired it? And has it been produced before?
6: Inspiration came from, well, first of all, the title kind of inspired me. And that came from a very famous American songbook song called For All We Know. Song from, I guess, the 30s or 40s. I'm not sure. Wonderful song but i've always been fascinated by the idea that we all well we all have big secrets and sometimes we can live with them and sometimes we have to uh, get around them and hide from them or, or whatever but certainly i've always thought with the with the rock and roll stars hitting the road and god knows the fun and partying they, they get into there have to be left behinds, if you want to call it that, in the way of unknown about, unknown children. And we know that's t- certainly true. So the question in my mind was, for all we know, what do you do when you're suddenly confronted with that person who you truly did not know existed? And that's that's pretty... I just wanted to explore that and see what happened. And I wanted to explore it more from the woman, the daughter's perspective. One of the
5: things that fascinated me when listening to it, and Dana and I talked a little bit about this um, before the interview, is Angie and her strength, approaching him with such strength and such determination, almost wondering if she was doing some reconciliation on the part of her mother. So not just not just following her own journey and path, but also buttoning some things up for her mom. I don't know if, if that was, um, if that was something I read in there or hoped was in there, but do you feel like there was any intention there?
6: Um, well, that, in that, part the- that was not in my, in my thoughts when I wrote it, but now that you say that certainly the section where she tells him, she talks about how much her mother admitted she loved him and, and uh, And listening to his music forever and reading his letters over and over. And so I guess, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is probably a sense of her finishing the journey for her mother as well.
2: Yeah, that was what I was going to bring up, was the letter, I think, is what sparked it for Christy and I. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, mom kind of was guiding her, it seemed like.
6: Yeah. And I've had uh, fellow playwrights who have read it, who love it. <clears throat> Excuse me, particularly love the uh, the young woman in there. But they've had, all had much the same comment. Gee, I'd really like to see more about the mother, another play about the mother. Um, and I thought, well, maybe it's uh, longer than the one act, but it's not. It's, I don't think it is. I can't find her.
5: I was going to ask if you ever had any intention of expanding it or if it accomplished what you wanted.
6: Well, th- this play does accomplish what I wanted. But I have considered several times, is there a way to expand it? I just haven't hit upon one that, that works yet. And maybe I will. Um, who knows? Things come up in the middle of the night when you're not expecting it. That's the truth. And that's not
5: the first time we've heard that either. Of uh, When that voice wakes you up in the middle of the night, you better have a writing instrument, something to write on and get it out before you forget it.
6: Yeah. The days of Zoe, oh, I'll remember this, are gone. So
2: <laughs>
5: we're a
6: with a phone right next to the bed, I can just pick it up and dictate into it.
2: Um, So you mentioned, okay, we know you've written for television. Um, You've mentioned you're writing a musical. We have For All We Know, which is a one act. Um, What do you prefer to write? Do you gravitate towards writing a particular type of script or is it kind of an idea hits you and you let the story take you where it's gonna go?
6: Uh, Yeah, more the latter. Um, My background has always been in comedy but I don't find them going down that road so much anymore. Uh, maybe because it's not such a funny time anymore. But um, my two the two full length plays that are out there that have been done. <clears throat> one is called Virginia Throws Awake, which is a very large farce, and the other one is called um, Prepping for Widowhood, which is a comedy of four older women dealing with the later years in their life. It it is a comedy. It's not pathetic or anything like that. They're very funny <laughs> yeah. ladies. And that that had a, a production this year out in uh, in Maryland at the uh, Best Medicine Rep Theater.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You said your first script was a comedy farce and then you wrote for Love Boat. Um, and there's definitely elements of comedy in For All We Know, which is yeah. kind of great, right? There you have that lightheartedness, um, So is that something that you feel like just comes naturally out of you, even if it is a more serious matter? Like you're someone who leans towards having something with that quick timing or a joke thrown in.
6: I I do. I think that's a natural part of my character. So as those characters are coming out of my head, at some point they're going to be either sharp-tongued or witty or maybe even corny. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of, it's not something that I go having to say, gee, how can I make this person funny right here? It it tends to come, language, it's all about language, and it, more than timing even. I'm a huge fan of looking for interesting ways to say things, and uh, in that you find comedy.
2: Well, I was just going to say, it struck me, you said I'm into finding interesting ways to say things. Are you a writer who, like, Overhears people talking and write down phrases that you hear. Do you play word games? How do you come up with some of this phraseology that you use?
6: I, I am a, a, a very serious eavesdropper, <laughs> and and I do. And although I may not know where I put my keys, I do remember though all, all that kind of stuff that I hear people say, and it works its way into the page eventually. Um, I do I do play word games. I do crossword puzzles. I do my favorite one is the New York Times Spelling Bee. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Every day you get seven letters, and you have to make as many words as possible, but they all have to include the center letter that uh, they're specifying. Though so it's it's fun, you know. Uh, Stephen Sondheim was a huge crossword person, and I I understand that. And you, all you have to do is read his lyrics, and you will understand that. Guy comes up with just amazing, or came up with absolutely extraordinary way to say things. I loved this concept of
5: sleepwalking that you talk about in the script. Where did that come from? Because that I think everyone can relate to that. Especially the older you get, the wonderment of if I had chosen this door instead of that door, how different would things be? And I loved this idea of something waking you up to the beautiful possibilities and gifts that are in your life that you just have been not oblivious to, but just sort of maybe blind to. Where did that idea of sleepwalking come from for this story? Um,
6: Well, you actually hit on it in in the beginning of your question. As you get older, you do tend to reflect on the past of your life. And um, I think I find myself when I do that often thinking, oh my God, how did that get, how did that happen? And how did I let that get, get by? And what have I done? Anything? Should I do anything about it? Um, and, and I think that's the concept of sleep. Sleep, where the sleepwalking concept came from—that we do. As we get, you know, when we're younger and we're pushing and we're trying to get make our way in the world and everything, we do blow right through things, just like blowing through a red light. Um, but then, as you slow down, as you have to slow down. <laughs> You do have that time to reflect. And I particularly find at this age that you don't get in bed and fall asleep like you used to. I get in bed and I I close my eyes and I feel real good and then my mind goes, hey, have you thought about this today? And then we're off and running. And that takes me down those paths. It takes me down where I, I wonder Where's this person who was so important at some point in my life? Where, when did I, how did this happen? Did I ever say thank you to this guy? And all that stuff kind of starts piling up and you don't feel guilty about it. You just feel odd that so much of life has gone by and you haven't really been totally present for it.
5: That that definitely resonated with me, what you just shared. Um why didn't I do that in my 30s? Why didn't I do that in my 20s? (laughs) Or I could have and I didn't see or things like that. So that um,
6: even at this point, I, I still ask myself, when I made the decision to come to Hollywood, it was between coming to Hollywood or going to New York. And I still ask myself, why didn't I go to New York? I don't have an answer. I think what I figured out was there was a good chance I was going to starve to death, but I let, like to do it in a warm climate at least. So
2: Let's talk. A lot of what we've discussed so far is is how um, you as a person shows up in your writing.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, you are inspired by the song. You've got these ideas that you like to incorporate, your comedy. Um, one thing we love to do here at Lights Up, because we are putting the focus on playwrights, is to talk about process. So you spoke a little bit about what you learned um, for television writing, but what is your process like specifically for playwriting?
6: Well, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm not a person who does outlines. I don't even beat out really in general the beats of a play. Um, what cat catches my imagination and makes me want to sit down and write is that interesting characters start come alive in my mind. And I sit down and I start to write them and I listen, want to hear what they have to say. And then as they start to talk more, I learn a little bit more about where we're going. It's, um, it's, and that's something that I actually learned, um, for years, I was with the Groundlings improv company back in one one of the first back at the beginning. And one of the things that we always focused on in there is, uh, when you move on to the next beat, there's got to be new information, and that new information has to come off of what you just heard, and that has really, really sort of educated the way I go in about writing, is I finish a scene, and I say, well, she said this. What are we going to know about that? We've got we to go somewhere else with that. We've got to hear what this is about, or we've got to see what the effect of that is, so it's that's really my process in the, in the initial drafts. And, uh, I just let the, I let, I know it sounds kind of like spooky or something, but I let the characters take me where they're going Mm -hmm. to some, some degree at times. I feel like I'm just the stenographer and they're telling me, talking to me. And I know it's not working when I feel my thoughts getting ahead of their thoughts, then I have to go back because it has started to become a little too logical or something like that, Logi- in the bad way.
0: Mm.
6: Um, whereas if I let them talk and react, it, it tends to come out a little more naturally. And that, that guides me. And when I do finish a draft and I go back, the first thing I could see is where I, I imposed myself on the story instead of just following them. Um, and having said that, at some point, you still have to go back in and clean up, make sure the logic is all there. And, and not just the the logic of the scene and the story and the words, but also, I'll go, wait a minute, how could she possibly go out this door, change clothes and come back in two lines? <laughs> so that's and that's another part of my writing process is that the director in me takes over at some point mm-hmm. um, and if i can't direct the scene that i just wrote then i i, I know it's not going to work
2: that's a good litmus test right there right <laughs>
6: is i've found myself directing really successful plays you know that've already been on broadway and are in in the canon for theater and i'll find myself at a time going like i don't I'm, i actually Called Woody Allen one day, was directing Play It Against Sam, starring Bill Dana. And I called Woody Allen and I said to him, I don't get this. Can you help (laughs) me out here? I said, and I got Bill Dana playing your part. Can I change some words? Because they don't sound right coming out of Bill Dana's mouth. (laughs) And he was gracious enough to say, yeah, sure.
2: So when you are going through your drafts then and putting your director hat on or checking to see if too much of you has come in. Um, Do you ever... uh, Do you prefer to have things read out loud? Do you belong to a playwriting group? What's your community like around your writing?
6: Um, I I don't belong to a playwriting group. Um, I do like to have it read out loud, but that's a long way down the line for me. Mm. And again, I think this is... um, Probably a little bit of having worked in television, in that you have to you have to make a lot of those decisions in the room. Yeah, I know I know many playwrights who go to a reading as quickly as they can, and they, I, I guess I, I've never done it. Well, that's not true. I've done it a few times, um, and I do belong to a group out here called Association of Los Angeles Playwrights (ALAP) who do offer readings. But I've never taken advantage of it, foolishly. Maybe I will sometime.
5: Do you have more stories that you are wanting to write and get out? Or do you find yourself kind of refining and adding onto ones that you've already
6: explored? I'm kind of finding myself a little bit of a block right now. Um, I've spent most most of the writing I've done in the last few months was to tear apart our musical and restructure it and finally hit it. Hit it where I think I, it's good, or at least I like it.
2: Tell us uh, if you're comfortable. You could tell us about the musical. Um, we often have our playwrights on Lights Up, who are also working on musicals. We love hearing about it.
6: Okay, uh, this this one is called Click Swipe, which is the title comes from Tinder. Click Swipe, Click Swipe, and this, the subtitle of the of this uh, musical is a musical of romance in the digital age. And one of the underlying core values of it is romance is a game everybody wants to play. Hmm. But it's an extremely difficult game to play because it's the only game with no rules. So you're constantly working off the top of your head. And you throw into that the modern disconnection because of uh, digital... It, you know, you, you you're right there, you've sort of lost that serendipity of meeting somebody and falling in love. Now you it's have like... to tell me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Single lady on the apps over here, Rob. I hear you. <laughs>
6: no, it's click, swipe, click, swipe, click, swipe. And uh, like anything that's distanced like that, you're buying into something you really don't know what you're getting. And so this musical is about romance, the difficulties of romance.
2: And are you writing the book, the book and the lyrics? How did this come about? What was the process?
6: I wrote the book and the lyrics. Um, The composer is a guy named Dan Folliart, who I've known for years. And you may not know Dan, but you know his music. He wrote the theme for Roseanne. He wrote the theme for uh, Home Improvement. He wrote the theme for Seventh Heaven. Um, His career in television is extraordinary. Every time I go to his studio to, to work, it's a wall wow. of awards. Yeah, and he's on the board of ASCAP, so very dedicated sort of guy. But really talented, and so fast. Oh, I'm sure. When I gave him the first, I, when I gave him the first song, I thought, okay. <clears throat> in a couple of weeks, I'll hear what he did. Next day, he said, "Okay, I'm sending you an MP3." I said, "That that's a six minute long song." He said, "Yeah, take a listen."
2: Wow. So this idea came to you and you knew automatically it was going to be a musical, or was it from a play you had previously done that you were transferring to a musical?
6: It it, it was intended to be a musical. I was looking for a subject for a musical, and uh, that had always been in my mind. The the basic thought of romance is a game without rules, so it's hard to play, was kind of the thought that was driving it. And so that was in my mind and I was looking for a composer and I called Dan to see if he had any he could recommend. And he said, B. Yeah. Oh,
2: that's very cool. Well, we're going to have to look for that one. Um, we always love It's, it's so fun. We have these, you know, one act 10, 15 minute plays. And then it's so exciting to hear about the breadth of work behind all of the playwrights that we get to interview. And we, we, I mean I'm a musical theater person so I very selfishly love to hear about all the new musicals. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us.
6: Some days maybe someday I can get it up on its feet for a reading somewhere but it's interesting what you were saying about the breadth of plays people write. I've got the full-length musical and a lot of one acts, some full-length and I just had a 10-minute play done at the uh, Fusion down in oh, Albuquerque. Cool. Their 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 festival, and that one, that that is my only ten minute play that I think it is, and the weird part of that one is, that's the first draft, I oh, never wow. rewrote it, because I when I wrote it I thought, well people are going to read like three pages of this and throw it in the trash, and it's gotten remarkable. Word from from everybody who reads it, all the professionals who read it, and obviously the theater got caught up in it. And the uh, producer of the theater down there described it in an in a uh, an interview he had for television or newspaper or whatever. He said it's it's kind of a cross between Waiting for Godot and the Carol Burnett Show.
2: Well, so you know, what are they waiting for him in dresses made of curtains? Is that what's happening?
6: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then another, this is one of my favorite comments. They said, if waiting for Godot and Don Quixote had a baby, this would be it. Well,
2: I think maybe you have to submit that one to Gary for him to read. Right. Christy? That sounds Absolutely. like it could be an easy play.
6: <laughs> okay. happy to. Um,
2: I'm going to ask one quick question that I was thinking of as you're saying this, uh, do you have a preference? You do, you've do. you done television, you do one-acts, full-length musicals. Do you have a preference? Do you prefer working on one type of play over another?
6: As, as opposed to, you mean?
2: As, oh, one yes, I shouldn't have said play. One type of writing genre, okay. do you prefer over the other? Um,
6: well, theater is my root. Those are my roots. And so I, I love working in the theater on every level. I've done everything from being a lighting designer to director and everything else. Um, the theater is what I consider my home. Um, television is where the good paychecks were <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and film. But theater, you know, that's why I wonder sometimes in the night why I didn't go to New York? It's, although I think that's a much harder path to, a uh, um, harder road to walk than in Los Angeles is or Hollywood. So.
2: It could be hard, but it's pretty rewarding. I've been working for a very long time out here, and I'm finally seeing some leeway with some projects that I've been working on. Oh, so excellent. You just never know.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, that's the, That's the secret. We never know. We just do it. We throw it out there and hope at least we're happy with it, and we hope at least one other person will be.
5: Okay, so for the first question, is there... And I'm actually very interested in the answer to this question with your incredible experience as a writer. Do you have a word that would be a favorite word or a word that you love to use or a word that you love to hear?
6: It's funny. you, you I said that, and the word lugubrious came to my mind, and I don't know why because I never use it, and I don't know what it means. So... <laughs> <laughs> no. So what's your favorite it's for
2: this moment? <laughs>
6: yeah. I, th- I think it's the sound of words, whether, whether I know what ah. they're for or how to use them or not. It's just the sounds.
2: Our second question is, do you have a place, a setting, a location, an area that is a favorite or really that one that you're really fond of? It could be in real life or in one of your um, pieces
6: doesn't matter Paris Paris I had an apartment there for 30 years which I just sold in 2019 and spent a lot of time there
5: um, all right so last question is there an item that is a particular keepsake or um, you know something very nostalgic for you it could be on the level of the house is burning that's
6: what I'm grabbing. Well, you, you get into some interesting questions here, and it makes me realize I live kind of a shallow life. Uh, I, I don't know that there, what would I grab if I had to get out of the house other than my wife? Because my laptop would be the only other thing I would want to make sure I've got.
2: A so lot of our writers say laptop. It's very important to them. <laughs> <laughs> um Thank you so much, Rob. It was so nice to get to chat with you. And thank you for submitting your play.
6: Thank you. Thank all of you. I appreciate being appreciated. So (laughs) I'm not at all lugubrious.
0: The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a sharp grant. The Songbirds Foundation of Chattanooga shares the transformative experience of music in eastern Tennessee, by delivering educational programming, preserving music history, hosting enriching events, and providing concrete resources to emerging artists. One of their flagship programs, the Guitar for Kids program, focuses on guitar basics and provides school aged children with the fundamentals through a diverse range of playing styles and techniques. As the students grow with the program, the lessons integrate music theory in specific genres and styles. Students work with certified music therapists in a group setting to develop their social emotional capacity so they're better equipped to navigate life's challenges, creating friendships, and establishing musical bonds with other players. The experience extends outside the classroom, where students attend free shows and perform, collaborate, and record with national artists. In 2021, over 55 schools, 18 partner programs, and 3,500 students took part in the program with more than 800 guitars distributed across the state. For more information on Songbirds Foundation, you can visit them on the website at www.songbirdsfoundation.org or in their museum in downtown Chattanooga. Lights Up
1: is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Collegiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the express written consent of the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you're interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at up at ensemble theatre of Chattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.